Are we ready? Yes. Everybody to episode ten of the Havana the Big Sessions 10. podcast. Woo! Woohoo! Celebration. That's right. And uh, yeah, today we have well, it's real interesting for me, particularly because this is I feel like my big one of my big big questions, my big drivers, and I have a feeling, Clay, that this is a kind of one of the fundamental drivers for you too, which is is there. A kind of un, un like a, a sorry. Is there an ordinary unhappiness that is pervasive in our lives? Like, is there a kind of discontent and dissatisfaction that we carry around behind our mask of yeah, everything's fine, everything's fine? And if so, what is it? And can we do something about it? Oh, I like that. I like it. That sounds like a nice meaty one. Now you're gonna. We had some um, some comments from last show. Before we get into discontentment I was thinking about this discontent business but yes we had something from maybe the uh, so last week we had a what would you advise your 13 year old self yeah and at the end of the show we said what would what, what was our question what would what would you, you tell you what would you ask, ask yeah. your your 65 year old self yeah so we got a uh, awesome response back from Mike Trussell who has three <laughs> awesome questions so he would ask his 65 year old self tell me your dreams what is it you cherish how do you encourage your grandchildren to be all they can be and what would you tell your 50 year old self Mm, I like the last one what would you tell your 50 year old self especially as I'm approaching 50 I wonder what my wise old 65 year old self would tell my 50 year old self see I I like the what would what do you cherish because I think asking someone at that point what they actually cherish out of all their experiences would tell uh, you a lot, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Awesome, I like Mike. it. Yeah, thanks, thanks for Mike. That. Yes, thanks. So, this discontent mix, yeah. and where does it come from, and are we... Because it, it's... Um, well, there's two literary references, and the winter of our, dis, our, our, the winter of our discontent, and then the other one from Thoreau, and that most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Yes, in fact, I was reading that whole first chapter of Walden earlier, ah, thinking about this. Yes. Yeah, that's a really kind of hits you in the face, that quote, doesn't it? It does. Like, am I leading a life of desperation? Yeah. <laughs> well, in some ways, and I was thinking, what are the various different sources that, that drives our discontent? First, I was thinking, what is discontent? I guess it's a uneasiness, not having peace, being, um, you know, not, sat- not satisfied in a way is, is this whole idea of discontentment. And I think there's some societal pressures. So there's an image in society that says this is what life is meant to be like, look like. Here's a model of success. And then if you compare that model to your model, and your model doesn't look like the one that society says, and there's, so there's a gap, and then in that gap is your discontentment, and that's what, and that's the big picture. Think about relationships as well, and I think we might have talked about 
um, in an earlier uh, a show um, where you were talking about your kids and your fairy tales and that thing. Mm. You think about the fairy tale of the finding your prince and living hev- uh, you know, happily ever after. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Nobody ever tells you what's, what's in the next chapter. What, no, what they never do. The... They don't tell you what that is. Yeah. But then, you, you know, your Prince Charming isn't, you know, we build up that massive image of, you know, the perfect uh, partner. Um, and nobody's perfect, of course. But then in the gap, then you get the discontentment and have I found my soulmate and all that sort of stuff. So I think there's a, I guess where I'm going with this, and I'll be quiet in a second, <laughs> is that we have all these models that we maybe didn't create, but then we use to compare our lives to that model. And when there's a gap, then we feel the discontentment. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think that there's a couple of people, my own ex- thinking about my own experience of what I, what I feel discontent about, and also watching people around me over the years, I feel like there's a certain kind of discontent that's really, like, I am really not happy in my life. This is not, like you're saying, this, there's a big gap. But I think the other, there's another experience I've had that really stands out for me, which is that uh, one of my best friends had always wanted to work in conservation and kind of environmentalism and ever since university and probably even before this was like kind of her dream and she we had a conversation years later where she had started working um at this big conservation non-governmental organization like amazing doing amazing work and had kind of gotten a degree of what we might call success recognition responsibility and our conversation was about how it's not enough. I'm still, I don't feel like I thought I'd feel when I got here. Like, I don't feel like, oh, great, I've achieved it and that's it. You know, there's still like a, this something isn't filled still. Yeah. And I think that's almost a more interesting question because it's a harder one to answer. If there's, if, you know, if you have a really crap job that you hate or a boss is driving you nuts or you have, you know, problems in your relationship, those are kind of identifiable things. But where, my other kind of question is, where do you go if even when you have everything you thought you wanted and you still feel underneath it all, like, not, I don't know what the word is, but just... Yeah, I think the answer is the same for both. Maybe, yeah, but I think, you know, like the answer there are both the... situations, I think. One's easier to pick out the things that you would label as discontent content, but I think lots of people have that same experience. I've done all the things, especially if you know if you say, well, all right, I'm going to play by the rules. Um, I've, you know, gone to university, got a degree in something um, marketable, got married, had the kids, got the house, got the cars, got the white picket fence, the whole American dream aspect. Um, making good money, but yet I'm still not happy. I'm still discontent. That's, yeah, you know, I've that, done everything I knew how. I've, what I've played to by do. the rules. I've done everything. Played by the rules. Know what to do, and still discontent. Or the scenario you've just outlined. You know, yes, job sucks. Blah blah blah. All that kind of stuff. But I think it's the same answer. And, and I'll re- go back to stoicism for the answer to that question. And that is that. 
we are externalizing our happiness to something else. So whether it's you know the big success, so I'm thinking, well, that's going to bring me happiness, and that's probably the big illusion that we're sold is that you get all these things and then you'll be happy. If I get the latest iPhone, iPad, have all these things, that'll be happiness. If I got lots of money, that'll make me happy. It was a great quote, uh, uh, Geld Geldof, I think, said, and it was. Uh, People who think money buys you happiness haven't been rich enough long enough. So I always <laughs> love that one. But so we think so we think these things will bring us happiness, but then those are external factors that we're tagging our happiness or contentment on. Then the Stoics would tell you that once you let all of the and that gets in Zen as well, the same sort of thing, let all those attachments go and the only thing that you have to focus on in your contentment is internal, the things that are under your control. Anything outside of that, then you open yourself up for the disappointment, the, the not being how you thought it would be, all that you open yourself up to, whereas if you focus inward on the things that you can control, which is very few things, which is really just your thoughts and the like, you can almost boost your happiness and contentment you know, almost instantaneously when you internalize that and focus on those things, no matter what your situation is. You know, we talk about Seneca, for instance, you know, he had, he was rich, lost it all, in jail, exiled, but through all that, you know, still maintained a sense of himself because all the external stuff he did, it didn't matter because he had no control of those. So those were not measures of success or happiness for, for him. So whatever the condition, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think yeah. it's a. I was looking at um, have like three books on my desk at the moment, are kind of in front of us. One is Affluenza by Oliver James. So I've gone back to that. All right. And his whole, he's very much focused on why is it that in richer societies where we seem to have solved all these like problems of you know whatever, basic survival and yeah. blah, blah, blah. You know, you find even more discontent than in societies that people don't have as high-level standard of health care and all, you know, all these things that we kind of think of as we've made it, you know. Yeah. And, you know, actually finds that... I mean, it's not that he finds it because he already knows the answer, but it's more of a... a question into why. Why does this happen? Why are we experiencing in our society such high levels of discontent, of, of just pervasive stress and anxiety that really are, yeah. Are, are, and, and I think he really locates all of that discontentment in the way that our contemporary society is. Like 20th, 21st century deal. Yeah. Because there and is a statistic get, that's floating more. around that says that we're less happy. We got more than our parents and grandparents had, but we're less happy than you know our grandparents in yeah. terms of the happiness scale. Um, so I think there's that, and then but at the same time, then you know there's Thoreau and Walden who is talking about some of these same things. Yeah. And then on another kind of level, and I feel like that's the level you're starting to talk about, is like the yoga Buddhist you know, perspective of that there is a pervasive discontent about the nature of existence, that things that we love are 
temple. And yeah. So we, deep down, we know that everything that we really love is is vulnerable to being taken away from us, and that makes us feel this just pervasive kind of sense that not all is right with things, even if it seems like everything's right. Unless you're a stoic. Well, that's one of the basic premises of stoicism is that, yeah, everything can go in a day. So appreciate it. In fact, one of the techniques in that or practice is the negative visualization. You know, people often say do positive visualization, things that you want. Well, they say do a negative visualization. So what your kids, loved ones, everything. So imagine that tomorrow that's taken away from you and what that would feel like, which then increases your appreciation in the present. So, you know, if you knew that it was the last time you were ever going to be able to have that cup of coffee there, that was your last coffee ever. Don't say that. Don't joke about that. That's not funny. How much more would that (laughs) cup of coffee right there taste if you knew that was your last one ever? And and so they say practice, you know, not to be like morbid and and live in that space, but to periodically practice negative visualizations to increase your appreciation of what you have before you in that moment, like really appreciate it as well, opposed to... Well, and it to makes you ask you yourself, what am I apart from all these things that I identify myself with? Like if everything's stripped away, what is, am I, who am I now? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's I like amazing. That one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the thing that I found really interesting about going back and, and reading Thoreau is that he kind of talks about... He has this one line. This is just literally in the first kind of chapter about how unfortunate it is that some people inherit vast property. Yes. Like, oh, it's so terrible for them. Like, much better to be like me with practically nothing because, you know... And then he he has this image about speaking to a a young man who's trying to walk down the street pushing a barn and, you know, all of the stuff that he has to take care of and carrying on his back, you know. And this is something that I think we need to all reflect on a lot more individually and as a society about all the stuff that we have. Like, how much is it, like, put it on the scale, you know, the great scale of, of whatever... How much happiness is it bringing versus how much anxiety does it come with about that thing being taken away yeah. or that thing failing and stuff. And the thing that Mike always comes to mind with this is cars because people who have really fancy cars, it's like they love their car, you know? And, you know, I, I am not in the business of judging what you should spend your money on. I don't care. Yeah. But what I notice is that if you have a really expensive car, all the joy that you have about driving it and how it drives and how it feels and how you feel about it getting into it and blah 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 all that joy comes with an increased anxiety about making sure you know nothing ever happens to it no one ever keys it you park in a good stuff area happens, <laughs> you know oh the alignment is off when I'm driving and now this is really stressing me out because this is a really expensive car and I expect incredibly high standard of performance from it so I've got to take it back now and you know this is a lot of stress. I can't go over bumps more than like two mile an hour. Yeah, I might, you know, you might mess up the alignment again. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, I think there, there needs to be a recognition that with stuff comes burden. 
as well. It's when your stuff becomes so. The more things you have, the more energy you got to put into maintaining them. And I guess it's that balance between when does your, you know, your stuff possesses you. You possess stuff, or it's possessing you. So yes, the you know, your example there with a nice fancy car. How much energy is tied up in that? Because there's another movement, and um, we can look it up. Um, Twigger, I think, is uh, the author, and that kind of pushed this forward. But he he measures these, you know, when you're making these materialistic purchases, how much is this going to cost you in life force energy? As in, I got to have this much to put into it, so I got to earn this much to buy the fancy car, and I got to continue to earn X amount in order to do the upkeep, the maintenance, gets the scratch, got to take it in, all those sorts of things. So how much? And then how much of those things can you let go of? You know, can you have the, you know, Daewoo? Yeah. <laughs> you know, a little green thing that gets you from point A to point B. Isn't a great status symbol, um, but it does what it needs to do. Totally. I think, you know, up to a point, and they say this, don't they, about your salary as well. Up to a point, it does increase your happiness because it, it gives you a sense of actually not being on the edge of of poverty and not hmm. being able to pay your basic bills but above that amount doesn't really do a whole lot for you and I think about this all the time with our house because we just bought our first house last summer it's a small house but it's amazing and that every time I go into a bigger house the first thing I think is like oh my god how long does this take to clean like, I don't want to clean this house yeah. I, give me my small house I can, I can handle cleaning that so I just think, you know, all of these things come with the other side. And I think it's not that you, you shouldn't ever want anything nice, but there should be a real recognition of what, what is it I think costing you. have to weigh you. it up. Yeah, what's yeah. it costing you? Exactly. So it's um, like some of my favorite um, writers, like travel writers, and they're like um, Tim Cahill comes to mind and he's like, you know, you're never going to get rich doing this, so you not to be doing it for the money. But I'm, I can afford to do this because I live in a cabin, and I think he's in Minnesota, you know, so I don't have very much. I don't need a lot to maintain my lifestyle because I actually don't have very much. Yeah. But then it lets me travel around yeah. and go to all these different countries and do all these amazing things because I don't need to maintain a big house, a car, or any of that kind of stuff. He doesn't have. And there's a, there's a few people like that, sort of my oh, um... And this guy's popular on Facebook, and I can't remember if you mentioned him to me, and the name's going to escape me now. I mean, he's... Oh, dang it, dang it, it's going to escape me. Um, maybe I'll, I'll follow up with uh, a link um, in the comment section on this. But it, basically, he sold all of his possessions. So he lives in hotels and things like that, and all his books are on the Kindle, all that sort of stuff. But then he doesn't need much money now. Because he has nothing to maintain, no house, no yeah. car, he doesn't, he, everything that he owns he can pretty much put in the backpack, the stuff yeah. that he actually owns, but it allows him to be more expensive and yeah. to travel and to do the things. So I think it comes back to what we said in the beginning, it's what's your model, are you buying into what's been sold to you? So you're buying into the magazines, the TVs, the glosses, saying that here's the pinnacle, here's what you need to be striving for, here's why you need to go to university, get this degree, have this big job, make all this money so you can have all this stuff. If you buy into that model, the further when you look at your current situation, 
the bigger that gap, the more discontentment, and then you're just constantly in that cycle. Yeah. But back to your point, can you step back, ask yourself the question, you know, what do I, what do I need for the minimum thing that I need? Can I let go of that? So let go of that, let go of that, let go of that. Is there's another saying, you're making me think of all these sayings, Adam, uh, and this is the real one about, um, the, along the lines about the freer you come, the more things you can let go of, the freer you become. Yeah. Um, so if you can let go of all those things, it would be very minimal. But it's hard, isn't it? If you live... It's really hard. I'm not, you know, I mean, Thoreau is great to read, but I don't actually want to live in a log cabin. Well, this is no, the thing. But, to, but why okay. don't you want to live in a log cabin? And, and before you answer, and here's my guess at it, that most people will look at that and then, but because it's so ingrained in us, the program is so ingrained in us, that says living in a log cabin somewhere in this modern society puts me on the outlier. Yeah, I don't think that's why I'm saying that. Mm. I think what Thoreau did was live on his own Mm. in the cabin in the woods for two and a half years. Like, I don't want to do that. And not everybody wants to do that because not everybody's the same. Not everybody's going to connect with who they are underneath it all in, in exactly the same way. But I think the fundamental principle is the same. Not everybody needs to give away all their stuff in order to be detached. There are people that are driving probably incredibly expensive cars out there that it gets a scratch and they're like, yeah, okay. There's no, they're not identified. Because they got more money than God, they don't care. Well, but, but maybe, but also, there's a lot of people who have crap loads of, It's not the money, yeah, yeah. because there are a lot of people that have tons of money that are 100% identified with that. I mean, we only have to look at some of the presidential candidates in yeah. our uh, country to, th- you know, think of some examples. And like, it's a, it's a choice. It's a, do I identify with this? Is this something that I think is really actually important? You know, does it, yeah. right, does it actually deeply matter that there's a scratch on this car? And some people are going to go, yes, it does, because I'm identified with that car. And some people are going to go, no, it doesn't. And I'll drive around with a car and a scratch on it, whatever. But I think, you know, this is something that really interests me, this, this idea of, of discontentment, because I think that th- there is this double layer of it. There's the, the way that our society is, and like you're saying, the picture that we're holding up everywhere, is, or is held up to us, rather, saying this is how to get to happiness, this is how to be content, this is, where you, this is what success means, this is where you need to go. And for that, I mean, you know, even in in my novel, The Boatman, that's one of the things that I really try and explore um, in the mainland. Because the mainland is a place that kind of embodies these type of more, more, more. The philosophy is uh, more is um, better, new is best. Doesn't matter what it is, more is better. Doesn't matter what it is, new is best. How many toys can I accumulate? And, and, (laughs) you know, in one of the bits... It's, you know, about how all these changes are happening. And there's this underlying whisper that all these things are going to make you happy. But that's not what it actually says. You know, so I think what, what I'm trying, what I was trying to kind of suggest there in writing that part of the book, and what I see is that people make a jump between what's in front of them and someone telling them this is the way to happiness. That, those words are so rarely spoken. It's implied, and people make that jump. Yeah. You know, because we don't want to look behind the scenes and see, is that person actually happy or not? You know, so, that, so anyway, I suppose what I'm saying is that there's this, 
the way that we're choosing to live and succeed and use ourselves and our lives. But there's also, from a from a Buddhist perspective, an underlying dissatisfaction or discontentment that's called dukkha, that's called samsara. They have words for this yeah. discontentment in that in that language. That is about um, the fact that you know things are transient. That we know deep down that we're going to die and how do we deal with that and that there so there's this kind of if we're disconnected from spirit like you were talking about you know needing to go up to the mountains if we're living a life that's that's disconnected from that aspect of our deeper selves that's just stripped away and yeah. still is and in fact is more when it's stripped away then we feel that more and more we feel that fear of of death, we feel vulnerable about almost everything. You know, all so so. I feel like even you, think you know, the thinking of modern society kind of pushes you again away from that. For you, yeah, in relationship to how how maybe way further back in our evolution, you know, spirituality was taught and part of, and you're part of the family unit and the community and that. As we started to move into more of an industrial age and start factory and we start changing the model and we got the enlightenment, all these different movements that maybe moved us further away from our spiritual selves and uh, and connections, that we've lost touch with that. I have have an amazing quote for you. Oh, awesome. I like it. Okay, so I'm looking at this book um, that I've come back to called The Wisdom of Yoga. And the do you know Annie Dillard? She's mm-hmm. a, okay, so anyway, there's a quote from her um, on the front that says, There were no formerly heroic times, and there was no formerly pure generation. There's no one here but us chickens. And so it has always been a people busy and powerful, knowledgeable, ambivalent, important, fearful, and self aware. A people who scheme, promote, deceive, and conquer, who pray for their loved ones and long to flee misery and skip death. It is a weakening and discoloring idea that rustic people knew God personally once upon a time, or even knew selflessness or courage or literature, but that it is too late for us. In fact, the absolute is available to everyone in every age. There has, there was never a more holy age than ours, and never a less. Uh-huh. Hmm, so that's kind of different than what you're saying, but it is. I'm not sure if I totally agree I'm with her. And, and, and my... my I guess the, the counter to that, what I would say, is watch Bruce Perry's tribe series where he travels to these different indigenous tribes that still exist. Yeah. And when we were talking about earlier about possessions, a lot of these people, in my own experience, because I spent some time in Malaysia, and these people that live still use the jungle to live off of, but they don't have much, but they all seem so happy. And some of these tribes that he's spent time with, they go into the jungle, get their food, they come, you know, so they still live very close to the earth in that way. And they, when you talk about that sort of, I don't know if happiness is the right word, or contentment, they have a very content life. They don't have the yeah. same pressures and things that, that we sort of have. I actually kind of feel like I fall more on your side. I'm not mm. sure I totally buy into yeah. what Amy Dillard I think it's saying. easy to say, and if you look backwards and think it was a better time, yeah. I think historically you can see how well even if you talk Thoreau, if you when you read when you read that, there's the same problems that we are having now and he was talking the same thing about commercialization, having a house and those possessions. 
You can go all the way back to Socrates and read some of the stuff that uh, Plato's written. And if you change, put a car instead of a horse, the same, they were having the same debates that we're having now, talking about possessions and being, you know, being owned by your money and all that, way back in Socrates' time. So it doesn't seem like human beings, and that's where I can agree, it doesn't seem like we've changed. Um, as human beings much we've got all this technology but I don't know if we've evolved because they're having the same but the, conversations but, but I think what was also true in my feeling about what you're saying is that the structure of society and the way that we actually live our life matters yeah I think you know, so I think so too and I think that giving time to that other you know that recognition there are cultures and there's and there's a way I suppose the thing about this quote from Annie Dillard is like, don't just look to the past and think it's too late for us now. I suppose that's where I would kind of yeah, you've got embrace to, that. It's like, actually, it is accessible to us. It's always, and it always has been. And I think that was, you know, I guess coming full circle, maybe the thing that we don't do enough of is creating, creating, um, creating our own model. As you said, you said, you know, someone holds up this model and say, this is it. We need to challenge and question that, create our own, and then live to that model. Because if we keep falling after someone else's, there's a discontent that comes with that. That's true. Although I think we don't need to reinvent the wheel. No, I think no. I think instead of, I think we need to challenge the dominant model nowadays. But I think there are a lot of people that we can look to and as inspiration that are doing it in an alternative way and I would challenge and say look inward just like you said yeah. about your house you like the small house because for whatever reason you like it and that's great and that's that to me is you saying here's what I like in this mindset and I have and I'm happy with that um, you're not thinking well I want to get a big mansion no I think but I suppose there is a possibility that when you take when you have a dominant model and you say um, don't look to that that's not the way there's a possibility of, of people feeling like well then well what's the other option make your own yes it's true but I think <laughs> you know there's nothing wrong with looking at other other people who are doing it in different ways and I think that for me this is what's you know kind of inspirational about about thinking about teachers and mentors and, and kind of people that you look up to that are doing it in an alternative way and maybe you're taking little bits from each of them, you know, you're not just remodeling your life on one other person's life, but you're looking and saying okay, I'm not happy, who is happy, who do I see out there that's living a life that they're enjoying and, or, or that they have something an experience that I want to cultivate in my own life and so how are they doing it and kind of studying what they're actually yeah. doing I think that can tell us a lot you know I think so I think well, that's how we learn isn't it yeah. by modeling and my only caution would be not to then just change the standards so you say oh that guy has it all I want to be like him yeah. I don't have it all yeah. now you've just shifted the same discontentment because I want to live like well, we that can take, we can take from <laughs> advice from the Buddha he basically I was listening to a um uh, something about the life of the Buddha and, and what he was saying right before he died and he said to his followers if you hear a story about the Buddha said such and such do not believe and do not disbelieve instead look into yourself and see is it true in your own experience 
so I think it's it's kind of a combination. It's like you can learn from outside things, you can take examples, but if it doesn't match with how you feel on the inside, then it's not right. You know, so that you're always doing that like double check. I like it. That sounds like a good place to end. <laughs> I like a, a quote with, from the Buddha. Yeah, man. How was my nickname at West Point, the Buddha? Uh, oh, he knew a, a few things. I had a bald head and people used to, you know I'm bald? It's because people used to rub my hair. Hey, <laughs> they did. They used to, before an exam, they used to come by and rub, rub my head. And then it just wore all my hair away at the top. <laughs> Four years of people rubbing my head. Coming, it's just like tests. it happens with yes. stone, man. It's like, like polished. On, exactly. So now that pot there is all shiny. Because people were rubbing my head for good luck. I love it. Brilliant. Awesome. Ah, that was good. I enjoyed that. I really, it would be really great if you're listening, if you know people are listening out there and they have their own kind of take on where they're feeling discontent or if they've seen other others in their life going through something that they would kind of think of in this yeah, way. Absolutely. Like, but it would be great to start a conversation because I think this is something that we don't actually talk about as much. You know, there's a lot of succeed and try and fail and then fail again and be great, yeah. you know, and there's not a lot of just, you know, reflecting on this level of stuff. So, I like it. Yeah. I tell you what we're gonna do. We're gonna. We were talking about this earlier. We're gonna create a Facebook page to be for to, to house the podcast, so you can make it easy for yourselves to comment and get the discussion going. Keep the discussion going in the comments thread below this podcast. Awesome. Until next week, let's go have another coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good.